Hey everyone, welcome to Church Online. One of my best friends once told me, some of my closest friends are dead. And I thought, well, that's a little creepy. I'm, I'm not so sure I, I want to be friends with you anymore. But it was his way of saying that he really enjoyed reading biographies. And by reading people's stories and seeing the world through their eyes, it was as if he became friends with them. And I, and I get it. Recently, I listened to the audiobook titled The Hiding Place. And it's the story of Corey Tinboom, who was a Dutch Christian woman and their family had hid Jews during the Nazi invasion of the Netherlands. And she has become a hero to me and, in a way, also a friend. I even cried when watching the movie on Amazon Prime because it was like watching a friend suffer. Because if you don't know her story, eventually her family gets caught and they are sent to a concentration camp. And some of them died, some of them were released, but Corey and her sister Betsy stayed imprisoned. And during their time at Ravensbrook, the sisters together saw and experienced horrific things. And while they were both radically in love with Jesus, for a time, they held very different perspectives. Corey fixated on the negative. And who could blame her? But as she did, hatred became the filter that she saw the world through. And on the other hand, Betsy saw it all as part of God's plan. And that's not to say that God approved of the evil, but in Betsy's mind, if God is in control and if he has a good plan, then everything that her and Corey were experiencing had a purpose. Therefore, she began to thank God for her sufferings, including living in lice-filled barracks. And while that is gross, it also kept the Nazi soldiers out of the barracks for fear of contamination, which allowed Betsy to openly share the gospel undisturbed. And so each night, she got to share Jesus with her roommates. God gave her a fertile field to spread seeds of hope. She also saw her time at the camp as a way to be more like Jesus. She would tell Corey, we can truly be lights in a place that is truly dark and that they could pray for even the Nazi soldiers and practice forgiveness in the same way that Jesus practiced it towards his persecutors. Her perspective based on her gospel-based thinking radically transformed her life. And it caused Corey to repent as well and change her perspective. And she began to look with Jesus's eyes. And when Corey was finally released due to a clerical error, aka God's intervention, she went on to share the hope of Jesus to anyone who would listen and who wouldn't listen to a concentration camp survivor. But more than that, her story, her testimony had resurrection power because she didn't just survive. She came out of the fire glorifying God with more hope, more faith, more love, and more forgiveness than when she entered into the fire. And God used her story to impact 
millions, including myself. And so Betsy was right. God did have a plan. And seeing the world through her perspective has helped me. You know, today in our I Think I Can series, we're going to talk about the reframe principle, which is all about perspective. You know, the replacement principle identifies lies and then replaces them with God's truth. The rewire principle, what we talked about last week, makes those truths our strongest thoughts. And the reframe principle builds on those first two principles to then change our perspective. And then next week, we'll finish with the rejoice principle. So let me start with a familiar Bible story that might help us. In the Old Testament, we're introduced to a young boy named Joseph. And he's the son of Jacob and the grandson of Isaac and the great-grandson of Abraham, the father of our faith. And for our purposes, I want you to remember one phrase. Remember the phrase, that's not his fault. And so Joseph was his father's favorite son. Genesis 37 says, now Israel or Jacob uh, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. If you're out there say, that's not his fault. You know, it wasn't Joseph's fault that his dad loved him or that his brothers hated him. Moving on, one day God gave Joseph a couple of dreams about the future and how Joseph would one day rule over his family. But initially, this caused his brothers to hate him even more. And again, say, that's not his fault. Then his brothers planned to kill him. But instead of killing him, they actually sold him into slavery. Once more, that's not his fault. When Joseph arrived in Egypt, the place that he was sold to, he was sold to Potiphar, Pharaoh's captain of the guard. But God was with Joseph and gave him great favor. And Potiphar made Joseph the master of his house. The Bible also tells us that Joseph was muy guapo, meaning very handsome. I'm practicing my Spanish there. And Potiphar's wife noticed. Once more, that's not Joseph's fault. That's not his fault. And she was like, I got a man, but I want you. And Joseph was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm good. Plus, I can't dishonor my master Potiphar or even my God. And she's like, you right, I, I got my guy, but I, I can't help it. I want you. And then she tries to pounce on him, but Joseph takes off faster than Tyreek Hill running down a football field. And the wife, after Joseph runs away, lies to Potiphar and says that Joseph tried to hurt her. And he believes his wife and throws Joseph in prison. Say, that's not his fault. But the scriptures say that the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now, while Joseph was there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, throws his cupbearer and the baker into the very same prison. And one night they have dreams, which Joseph then interprets with God's help. And one dream was that the cupbearer would be restored to his position with Pharaoh. And at that point, Joseph says, 
Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me this kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. So so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me in this pit. But the scriptures go on to say, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And Joseph spends two more years in prison. Say, that's not his fault. But then Pharaoh has troubling dreams and no one on his staff could interpret them. That is until the cupbearer remembered Joseph. And so they brought Joseph to Pharaoh and he, with God's help, interprets the dreams, telling Pharaoh of the seven years of great harvest and the seven years of greater famine that are to come. And he also says, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. And Pharaoh looks at Joseph and says, okay, I pick you. And by God's power, Joseph saves the land from famine, including the land that he was originally from. You see, the famine had even reached Israel. And we know this because Joseph's brothers come to Egypt looking for food, and upon arrival, they bow before Egypt's ruler, not knowing that it was their brother just as Joseph's dream had predicted. And Joseph instantly recognizes them, and then a, a series of heartfelt stories follow. But I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead to the end. Now, Joseph's family, including his father Jacob, come to live in Egypt underneath his protection and provision. And when Jacob dies, the brothers become fearful, thinking that now Joseph will get his revenge. We better beg for his forgiveness and his mercy. But listen to how Joseph responds. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. And here at the end of the story, we see a few things. Number one, that God had a good plan, even though it involved difficult circumstances. Number two, Joseph suffered a lot, and, and it wasn't his fault, nor would anyone have blamed him if, as he was going through these things, he had a bad attitude and maybe gave up at some point or even took revenge on his brothers. But number three, we see that Joseph never did any of those things. He remained positive and faithful to God. And at the end of life, we see him completely synced with God's perspective. And I want to suggest a reason why this happens. In Joseph's story, you will notice three themes that are weaved through the entire thing. Number one, that God is in control. Number two, God was with Joseph. And number three, Joseph believed both of those things, even when he didn't understand. 
And that reframed his perspective on life. In a way, Joseph's perspective is described in Proverbs 3, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And this proverb is the pillar for this week's principle, which is the refrain principle. Craig Rochelle, pastor of Life Church based out of Oklahoma and is the one who deserves the credit for a lot of what I'm sharing, explains the refrain principle by two statements. Number one, he says, you will always find what you're looking for. And number two, you can't control what happens, but you can control how you perceive it. And many of us will easily agree with these statements, but just in case you don't, consider the following. First off, have you ever fell in love with a car and then began seeing it everywhere? Why does that happen? Did everyone suddenly go out and buy that car just to make you jealous? No, it's just that your mind is fixed on that car and you always find what you're looking for. Secondly, consider a boss who gives a team of two feedback on a shared project. The boss says the same thing to both. And one partner replies, that was helpful. I can see where I can improve now. The other says, who are they to say those things? Ah, I hate working at this place. What's the difference? It's the perspective. It's the filter. The filter affects the facts. The employees couldn't control what was said to them by the boss, but they could control how they perceived it based on their filter. Now, let me throw this in there. And my friend Arthur shared this with me. In this picture, what's bigger? Is it the hand or the Eiffel Tower? It's the hand, but why? Because based on perspective, we are closer to the hand. But we know that based on truth, the tower is bigger. It's just our perspective is off. Sometimes our ability to control how accurately we perceive things is directly related to our proximity. And this is what the reframe principle is all about. It's learning how to take control of our perspective or how we view the world based on truth. Science calls this process cognitive reframing. And it's a process that we find in scripture. It's what Joseph does because he couldn't control what happened to him. None of it was his fault, but he could control how he framed it. And because he trusted God, he interpreted everything, even the suffering, by God's truth. And because he stayed close to God, he always had an accurate perspective on how big his God is versus how big his fears were. And that changes everything. Imagine knowing everything you experience is working together for God's good. Imagine believing each step is ordered by God and is part of his plan to bring hope to the world. Imagine waking up knowing God's purposes await you. And imagine ending each day confidently saying, this is what I was made for. 
Well, you don't need to imagine. That's the reality for those who practice the reframe principle, who reframe their reality based on God's truth. But I do have some bad news to share. This isn't easy. And it requires a willingness to suffer through circumstances that you don't understand and don't like. Furthermore, science reveals that we have at least two biological factors working against us in the practice of this principle. Number one, last week I shared that author John Acuff believes that our brains are jerks. In his book, Soundtracks, he talks about a social rejection experiment that was conducted by the University of Michigan that found that our brains released the same coping chemicals during fake trauma as it does during real trauma. That even when we know something isn't real, our brains can release chemicals anyways, making it feel real. Have you ever had a dream or an argument in your head with your spouse or with your coworker only to then be irrationally upset with them the next time you see them? That's because your brain is having a hard time discerning a real conversation versus a fake conversation because it released the same trauma coping chemicals. Man, sin has truly messed up our bodies. Now, number two, additional Lee, there's this very real psychological thing called cognitive bias. Now, cognitive bias, or for our purposes, we'll say confirmation bias, which is just a subdivision of cognitive bias, is the fact that our brains like to believe things it already believes. It's bias towards those things. And ultimately, this is connected to the brokenness caused by sin too, because it really is what it's saying is our sinful pride doesn't like to change. We like to play the victim and our sin likes to stay close to our fears, which then forces us to believe that they are bigger than our God. And so considering both of these things, it is incredibly hard to begin practicing cognitive reframing or the reframe principle, especially when we have held certain perspectives for a long time. But there is hope. And our hope is that God is with us. The same way that he was with Joseph, the same way he is with Paul when he declared in Romans 7, what wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death that keeps on doing broken things. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is going to save us. And he is with us the same way that he was with Betsy and Corey Tinboom. Additionally, Romans 8 says, what shall we say to these things? If God is with us, if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us and he wants to help renew. He wants to help restore our minds. And so he will help us take those lies captive and then replace them with truth. He will send us his Holy Spirit to repeatedly remind us of his truths so that those truths become our strongest thoughts. God's doing that right now. You're not here listening to this by accident. And God will be with us to help fix our 
perspective. But before we end, I, I think there's something else that needs to be discussed. One can follow these principles and in this life have temporary success improving their thinking, which will improve their lives. But when they die, they'll still end up eternally separated from God. The reason I say that is, my friends, I, I, I want to make sure that you know that the purpose of today isn't prescribing a positive thinking self-help program. What I'm preaching is the kingdom of God. I'm preaching the hope of eternal life. What we're discussing is how to have a transformed life by the renewing of our mind. And that life that I'm talking about is only found on a narrow path. And the only way to get onto that narrow path is by embracing the perspective that Jesus is Lord. And 1 Corinthians tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And you are only in the Holy Spirit when you repent, when you turn away from your sins and surrender your heart to Jesus. And so let me ask, have you truly done that? Because if you haven't, nothing that I have said is going to matter. You got to have that as your step one. Now, if you're wondering if that's happened in your life, Jesus has given us an easy way to evaluate that. Luke 6 says, a good tree can't produce bad fruit. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Jesus tells us that a transformed life produces good fruit. Now, Scripture goes on to describe what that fruit looks like. Galatians 5 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, what I'm going to say may hurt a little, but it is God's truth. It, it's biblical, meaning it's consistent with what God tells us. The Bible isn't just a feel-good book. Its primary purpose isn't to make you happy. It's also corrective. There's a ton of warnings, and warnings are not inconsistent with love. In fact, loving parents often warn their children. And so let me lovingly give you a warning. If, if you're listening to all of this stuff that I'm talking about, if you've been with us for this series and, and hearing all of these principles, and you've even begun trying them, but you're noticing they're not working, and you're noticing that you don't have Holy Spirit fruit in your life, let me warn you, don't be deceived. Don't let your confirmation bias dupe you. The reality is, is that you may have never truly surrendered to Jesus as Lord, and you're trying to claim God's promises to his children, but you ain't even part of his family. And I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. And here's another truth-based reality. 
Just because you go to church or said a prayer or cried out a worship song doesn't mean that you're saved. It doesn't mean that you belong to Jesus and are forgiven and promised the hope of eternal life. In fact, the very first parable that Jesus ever taught involved four different types of soil being sown with the seeds of God's word. And he said that three out of the four soils, which represent hearts of certain kinds of people, were faking it. And if today you find that you ain't living for Jesus, let me give you a warning. He might not be living in you. But here's the good news. Even if you aren't right with God, you can change that today. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Right now, you can know that God loves you and wants you in his family. And if you will turn from your sin, if you will tell God that you're sorry and that you want to be forgiven, if you want to let him know that you are ready to accept his free gift of salvation, that you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and that you're ready to see the world with his heart and through his eyes, he will accept you. He will save you. And for the rest of us, let me give us three ways that we can practice the reframe principle. We can think of it this way, past, present, and future. And so number one, past. We can reframe our past by being thankful for everything that we've gone through. You know, previously, your past has hurt your perspective, but today you can choose to reframe it. The fact that you are still alive after that pain means that God still has a future for you and that he wants to use that past for a future good purpose. Therefore, take time to reflect on your past and thank God for him being with you during those times. And additionally, look for the good that he did do in those difficult times, because we will always find what we're looking for. And when you find it, thank him for it, because he allowed it for a reason. Number two, present. Right now, you might be going through something that you don't understand. But trust God anyways, because the truth is, is that he is good, he is in control, and he knows what he's doing. As a young girl, Corey Timboom asked her father about something that she didn't understand. And having just taken a train to buy parts for their watchmaking business, the father asked Corey if she'd carry the bag for him when they stopped. Now, she tried to pick up the bag, but it was much too heavy with all of those parts in it. And, and he replied, I knew that would happen. And I'd be a pretty poor father to make you carry it. But then he goes on to say, it's the same with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. And until you're ready, you got, you got to trust me to carry it for you. And you know, that is the same way with God's ways. Sometimes things are happening that are much too heavy for us as his children to understand. And we got to simply trust our Heavenly Father to carry it. Today, many of us are carrying weight that does not belong to us. And so what we need to do is we need to drop the weight and draw close to God and trust him with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding. Is there something right now that you need to let go of? Finally, we can think about the future. We can create 
truth-based scriptural affirmations aimed to align our perspective with God's perspective. Because we don't just need to reframe our past, we can pre-frame our future. So proactively plan how you will frame your world moving forward and frame by faith, frame by God's truth. For example, John Acuff has a saying that everything is always working out for me. And it's a saying that whenever he faces something, even unexpected or what initially feels uh, uh, difficult, this saying helps him remember that even though he can't control what happens to him, he can choose how to respond. And you know, this response kind of sounds like Romans 8, 28, which says uh, that all things are working together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He also says, oh, well, whenever he fails at something. Now, he doesn't say it because he doesn't care or is, is going to give up, but saying, oh, well, helps him have a proper perspective in the sense is that when he says, oh, well, he's understanding that, hey, I messed up. The reason why I messed up is because I'm not perfect, but I am willing to be perfected, so I'll keep pressing on. And it's very similar to how Paul said, not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. And so what scriptural affirmations can you speak over your life that can help you pre-frame your perspective so that whatever you face, you're ready to respond by faith? You know, our perspective, how we see the world changes how we live in the world. And when we see the world like Jesus saw it, we'll begin to live in the world like Jesus lived in the world. Let's pray. Father, help us to have your heart and your eyes. We confess this is not easy. Part of us would rather say, my will be done, not yours. But we know that we must live like Jesus who said, your will be done. That's because his perspective was perfectly synced with yours. And we desire that. And so help us by your Holy Spirit to have that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us for Church Online. If this was your first time joining us, please fill out a Connect card. We would love to say hi to you, even send you a gift. Also, if you have any questions about the River Church, maybe have a prayer request, or you've decided to follow Jesus today, we want to hear from you. And there's an easy way to do that on our website, riverchurchct.com, or you can text the keyword TRC Connect to 94000. God bless you. Have a great day.